Kritisch, ja. <lacht> Just so happens. I am Richard Polsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 28th of October. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So, where are we? It's an old Kentish seaport, famous for its brewery and its explosives factory. What could possibly go wrong there? Yes, it's Faversham! We are performing the show in the Faversham Fringe, a six-day festival which features 72 shows in all genres of the performing arts and describes itself as Kent's friendliest festival. And our venue this afternoon is the Guildhall in the centre of the town. This Grade II listed building dates back to the early 1800s, but there has been a Guildhall on Tanner Street since medieval times and Queen Elizabeth I visited and enjoyed a civic banquet here in 1572. The original Guildhall was built on this site in 1603. However, due to a fire around 200 years later caused by unruly celebrations for one of Wellington's victories in the Napoleonic Wars, it then needed to be rebuilt. And we have an audience for our show in the Guildhall today. We've been told the fire regulations are not to get too unruly themselves. <laughs> so talking of setting the place on fire, let me introduce today's panel. Please welcome Jude Sack, Richie Rounds and Christy Ingalls. <laughs> now Jude Sack is one of the co-founders of the Faversham Fringe Festival very much a Faversham local and familiar with all the local haunts. She was in fact once a ghost in the wartime tunnels at Dover Castle. I'm literally that old. <laughs> um, anything else that I've missed out about yourself or should I swiftly move on? I'll move on. Move on, move on. So Richie Rans is one of the It Just So Happens regulars, having appeared previously as a panellist in our shows in Bedford, York and Brighton. He brings his special brand of comedic observation and historical knowledge to our shows. So, have you learnt anything recently? Oh yes, I learnt one thing very recently. So, uh, you know the thing they say at the end of gambling ads, that uh, if the fun stops, walk away. What I recently learned that that is apparently not enough, a good enough excuse for leaving my courtroom, Mr. Rands. <laughs> uh, I should probably move on. Can I ask Fabersham a question? What's Kent's unfriendliest festival? <laughs> I'd really want to know. There's only one festival. <laughs> and our third panellist is Christy Ingalls. Now, you're a fledgling stand-up comedian who once performed in front of an audience, including the Duke of York, uh, and you told me that apparently he remained straight-faced throughout your sex, which I think is probably a good thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to say? Yes, I, I have the only title of Marchioness of Whimsy. Uh, I am Professor of History and Compulsive Life. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thank you. So that's the panel. And I'm going to do little segue pieces now about the 28th of October. So Jude's going to be here first up with, the, with your topic, please. Thank you. Um, so yes, today in history, to 28th of October is actually the Feast of St Jude. So it felt rude. felt rude not to learn a bit more about it um, as I've lived in this town and seen the signs and wondered. Um, so yeah, Faversham is the home of the National Shrine of St Jude, a Roman Catholic shrine adjoining the church of Our Lady of Mar Mount Carmel in Tanner Street, where the uh, old Guildhall used to be. Um, St Jude is also known as Judas, but not Iscariot, the bad one, um, and also known as Thaddeus, was one of the original 12 apostles. Um, in the 18th century, St Jude became known as the patron saint of lost causes. However, nowadays... Um, the preferred term is the patron saint of hope, which actually I rather like. 
Um, so the National Shrine of St Jude was founded in Faversham in 1955 by Father Lynch, um, the then head of the Order of Carmelites down in Tanner Street. Um, there is a link with my family here, in that my father, who happens to be in the room, um, was a budding printer at the time, and the Carmelites had a good printing press, and he used to go down there and help and find out and learn stuff about it. Um, and then he subsequently went on to become a printer, so it kind of been all that bad. Um, so the Carmelite Press produced this regular newsletter, the Carmelite News, um, to keep supporters of the friars in touch with what was going on, um, both in Faversham and further afield. Um, and then in the early 1950s, Father Lynch and the um, fellow Carmelite friars produced about a quarter of a million pictures of St Jude with various prayers and sent them out to people that had asked for them. And it kind of went viral. Um, and people started sending thank yous and donations to the shrine of St Jude and this shrine didn't exist. So they thought they'd better quickly set one up. <laughs> So on the feast day of St Jude, the 28th of October 1955, 67 years ago today, the Bishop of Southwark, Cyril Calderoy, dedicated the newly built shrine of St Jude, describing it as a jewel for the diocese. So many places in the world claim to have some of the mortal remains of St Jude, preserved as relics, including St Peter's Basilica in Rome, no less. Um, we have a relic of St Jude here, which is used by the shrine to bless oil, which people use as part of their prayer. Um, and in 2014, the Guild of St Jude was founded to promote the mission of the Carmelite family and to encourage pilgrimages to the National Shrine here in the town. So if you're wandering around town, you will spot the various signs pointing to the Shrine of St Jude, which incidentally is rated 4.8 on Google <laughs> and uh, five stars by the British Pilgrimage Trust. Um, they also, I found the other day, have an online shop, so of course I had to have a good old look. Um, they sell St Jude-related merch, including a nine-carat gold medal, a nine-inch statue of St Jude, um, marble effect rosaries, and my favourite, the reasonably priced St Jude fridge magnet, magnet costing one pound. <laughs> I'm also tempted by the St Jude keyring. <laughs> so that is about all I have to say about St Jude. Lovely, thank you very much. I must say, I quite like the idea of a fridge maggot. <laughs> anyway, that was, that was very interesting, thank you. Uh, so now the first of my own uh, on this day segue pieces, where I'll be asking the learned panel some questions to test their knowledge and powers of deduction. So, on this day, in 1726, a book was published called Travels into Several Remote Nations of the World. What is the more famous title of this book? Oh... Around the world in 80 days? No. Gulliver's Travels. Yes. yes. Gulliver's Travels. Yes. So rather than Jules Verne, it was Gulliver's Travels, yes. One of the books which gave rise to the novel form. Who wrote Gulliver's Travels? It's like pub quiz time. I know, but I saw it on your screen, so I don't want to say it. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's Jonathan Swift, yeah. Uh, this book is written in the first person from the point of view of Lemuel Gulliver, a surgeon and sea captain who visits remote regions of the world. A parody of the then popular travel narrative, it describes four adventures. Now, I, I'll confess I haven't read the book, so I've had to do my research, but uh, can any of you rem remember anything about the four adventures or are familiar with any of them? Well, so it's at Lund, but it's the uh, most well-known one, isn't it? Yeah. Just the land of the little people. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the thing of the giant egg at one point. Oh, the war over the egg. Mm. The correct way to cut an egg. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Which sound ridiculous, but let's be honest, there have been much cheaper reasons for the war. It was the point of it, really. So the Lilliputians were six inches tall. So the, the ruse is that Gulliver is shipwrecked and he arrives at Lilliput, he, sw he swims there. And he's tied up by these people, so you might, you might remember the image of him being tied up by these tiny 15 centimetre tall people. Um, taken to the capital city, eventually released. But the Lilliputian size uh, mirrors their small mindedness, so they indulge in these ridiculous customs and petty debates. And it reflected the uh, English Tories and Whigs of the day. 
Anything else from the adventures? That's the most famous one. Well, there, there, wasn't there another one where it was the opposite, where everyone was going? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I can tell about that one. So the second voice was, it's not easy to say, but just to Brob Dingnag, inhabited by a race of giants. Um, so a farm worker finds him and delivers him to the far, farm owner, and he exhibits Gulliver for money. Uh, and various ventures, and I can't go into all the details, so I've got time. And then in the third one, there's a flying island of Laputa. And in the fourth one, there's a race of horses called Hoimums. <laughs> I can't quite say it. And they're more intelligent than humans, basically. And so uh, Gulliver finds that uh, the horses reject the idea of, of England and how that sounds. And they realise that the horses are actually superior. So how does Gulliver actually end his days? I do not remember. If you, if you, uh, it's too hard. So he, he avoids his family and buys horses and converses with them instead because he finds that they're much better company. <laughs> uh, two words that have entered the common lexicon from Gulliver's travels. So Yahoo, meaning a crass or stupid person. And of course Lilliputian, meaning small or trivial. So there we go. Uh, it's over to you now, Richie, for your piece. Set away for Richie Bannon. Small and yes. trivial. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or a person, if you want. If you want. <laughs> well, to be fair, that one might be more accurate. Um, right, thank you, Richie. So, on the day I married, my best man's speech pointed out that, being born on the 4th of July, I shared a birthday with the United States of America. He also pointed out that, being born on the 13th of August, my bride shared a birthday with Fidel Castro. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'll be honest, I didn't get the joke at the time, uh, but I finally understood it six months later uh, when I read up on the political history of America and uh, Castro's Cuba uh, during the abundant free time I had after my expensive divorce. <laughs> <laughs> now, who could have predicted what a world-changing and devastating financial impact one young law student could make? I certainly didn't, so that's why I married him. <laughs> back to Cuba. Um, Quick quiz question, just on a shout out. Who knows the capital of Cuba? Ah, uh, you're all wrong. It's a trick question. They're anti-capitalist. <laughs> um, anyway, it just so happened that the 28th of October not, marked not one, but two important dates in the history of Cuba and America. Now, Cuba was discovered in 1492 by Christopher Columbus. It was also discovered in 2011. Uh, by my parents while they wanted to find a holiday destination with cheap rum and no Americans. <laughs> um, now, Columbus is of course history's poster child for failing upwards. In the annals of people completely buggering up what they set up to do, uh, Columbus is the equivalent of someone waving at a friend across the road, realising it's a stranger, running their hands through their hair to try and style it out, and then finding a £50 note in their fringe. <laughs> Everything he set out to do, he failed, but somehow discovered America and became <clears throat> famous. Um, but before accidentally, and not realising he'd done it, discovering America, um, there was Cuba. So Europeans first set foot on the island on the 28th of October, when Columbus claimed it for Spain. Now Columbus's skill at forming relations with native populations are best demonstrated with uh, one region in Hispaniola, where Arthur Columbus's brief attempt at negotiations uh, he was inspired to name it Golfo de la Flechas, or the Bay of Arrows. <laughs> you can see that he made friends. Um, in Cuba, a comienda was instituted, which is where the natives were forced to work for the Spanish. But in return, they were given some things like military protection and education and smallpox and measles. <laughs> Very shortly, Spain discovered that for some reason. They had a mostly empty island on their hands uh, and developed it as an agricultural hub. Uh, and then after that, over the next few centuries, Cuba was treated like the only good idea in a group discussion. Everybody claimed it was their own. It's been Spanish, British, Spanish, American, Spanish, eventually became independent, but under a military dictator who was backed by the American government because they loved that guy. Enter a law student turned guerrillero uh, Fidel Castro, one of the founders of the Cuban Revolutionary Movement. 
Castro's revolution gained momentum and ultimately had the support of the American government because they loved that guy and they definitely didn't used to love that other guy that they get in rope now. Despite initially acknowledging Castro's new government and hoping his revolution would spread democracy to other Hispanic nations, America eventually turned against Castro because they hated that guy now and they never used to like him. <laughs> uh, Castro established a communist state that's in 200 miles off the coast of America and expropriated thousands of acres of American-owned farmland. And if there's one thing that America hates more than a country where people can't choose, is a country where they choose to do things America doesn't like. <laughs> uh, after a series of covert actions too ridiculous to satirise by the ironically named American intelligence, uh, which included attempts on Castro's life and his beard, uh, genuinely, I'll slide circle they, they had plots against Castro's beard because they felt that it was one, one of the big sources of his credibility. Now, anybody who's been in a room with my friend Richard here since lockdown knows that that is not a sign of credibility. <laughs> you know, I love you a bit. Um, but after all that, it really came to a, a, a height when Castro's government allowed 80s comic book villains, the Soviet Union, to place most nuclear weapons on their land. Uh, now, the nukes were so close to American soil that proclaimers could walk the distance 11 times <laughs> before falling down at your door. Uh, this action was completely unprovoked, unless you count America placing nukes in Italy and Turkey, which shared a land border with the USSR. Um, and it led to a 22-day naval quarantine of Cuba. Now, that's an interesting word. It was a quarantine. It wasn't a blockade. Because it was a blockade, that was an act of war, and the Americans were just being friendly neighbours, y'all. Um, imagine this, a quarantine like that, a lockdown, what, 40 years before Joe Weeks. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, for the first 12 days of the quarantine, the Cold War almost heated up to the third global conflict. But after tense negotiation, an agreement was reached to de-escalate crisis on the 28th of October. So this day's marked two stops at Cuba on the way to America that shaped history. Ballistic missiles in 1962, which could have devastated the people living in America at the time, and germ-bringing conquistadors, who definitely did. <laughs> and if there's one lesson I think we can all take in this lecture, it's that divorcing a lawyer is really expensive. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So the second segue hopefully is a little bit easier. Uh, which famous statue was officially dedicated on this day in 1886? Nelson's Column? No. Oh no. We've been talking about this country just now. Oh, Liberty. It was the Statue of Liberty, yes. So it was dedicated by the US President Grover Cleveland, who was a former New York governor. Do you know which island in New York, York Harbour the statue is on? I don't know the size. No, it's oh, not. That's, that's what I was small looking for. Island. It's not Staten Island. No, no. It's called Be well. It was called Bedloe's Island, but it's now called Liberty Island. Where was the statue constructed? France. Yes, indeed. So the pedestal was constructed locally, but the main statue was a gift from the people of France, and it was constructed there. Now, not a trick question. What colour was the statue when it was dedicated? Copper. It was copper coloured, yeah. So we see it now as green, but it was actually copper for about 35 years until it kind of went green with the oxidisation. Uh, so now, what do we think the statue depicts and signifies? Well, the, the book has the, is that one the greeting room that you'll uh, Paul UB Tunnel Matters? Yeah. So it's. it's uh, mm. Is it justice because she's. Isn't she, she blind? No, no, no. But it's, it's the torch of freedom, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's, it's freedom for people to go to America to be free. Which Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it depicts a robed woman holding a torch. The flame of the torch is coated in gold leaf. Its classical appearance is derived from Libertas, the Roman goddess of freedom from slavery, oppression, oppression and tyranny. And the, the seven spikes on the crown, evoking the seven seas and the seven continents, Lady Liberty's torch signifies enlightenment. Now she holds a tablet, and that represents knowledge. It notes the date of the Declaration of Independence back to the 4th of July. 
1776. How big is the statue of the pedestal? So you can take a wild guess at this. 127 metres. <laughs> I've only got it in feet. Can you convert it to old, old money? 389. Very, very close. Very close. <laughs> no, okay. Yeah, okay. So uh, the statue is 151 feet tall and the pedestal is 154 feet tall for some reason, a slightly different. So uh, well done, sir, for getting <laughs> such a. Uh, there's no prize, I'm sorry for guessing. Um, she also has a, a waistline. Lady Liberty is 35 foot around the waist. So, um, oh, coincidence. So, I'm okay. Um, uh, anyway, so what's the connection with 28th of October? Well, the statue is dedicated on this day in 1886. And the, are you right there? Uh, and that included speeches by the President and the French engineer Ferdinand de Lesseps. There was music and there was gun salvos. The finale saw the statue's designer, Frederick August Bartholdi, who was perched in the statue's torch, pull a rope, which removed a large French flag from the front of the statue, and that revealed Lady Liberty's face to the crowd. So, true or false, or was it built to remember and celebrate immigrants to the US? False. False. False, yes. So, at the entrance of the pedestal, there is a plaque bearing a sonnet by Emma Lazarus, who wrote it as part of a fundraising effort for the statue, titled The New Colossus. It includes the famous lines that she alluded to. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. However, the poem did not feature in the ceremony and the plaque was only added to the pedestal in 1903. The only immigrants mentioned at the ceremony were illustrious descendants of the French nobility who fought on behalf of the United States against Britain during the American Revolution. So there's a historian called Barry Marino, who's uh, like the historian for the statue itself, and he says it was never built for immigrants, but it was built to pay tribute to the United States of America, the Declaration of Independence, American democracy, and democracy throughout the world. It honoured the end of slavery, honoured the end of all sorts of tyranny, and also friendship between France and America. So, question. Visitors used to be able to climb the torch, but what put a stop to that? Fire. Fires, I like that. Like well, fell off. Oh, it's safe. Thing. Uh, no, it's never actually fallen off. Yeah. No. Was it after the X Men had that big fight in there? I've not seen that one. <laughs> uh, guess what I was trying to just say? Just going for yeah, it. Yeah, so German spies planted explosives at a munitions depot connecting Black Tom Island with Jersey City on the 30th of July 1916. And flying debris from that explosion damaged the statue's arm and torch, and it was only repaired in 1984, so it took a long time to get around to repairing it. Incidentally, the statue is also estimated to be hit by lightning on average about 600 times a year. So, final thing for this true or false? Thomas Edison proposed that a giant gramophone be installed inside the statue, enabling her to speak. False. Oh no, I'm, I'm going to go through. I like the idea of that. It is true, yes. But obviously the idea was rejected. No. <laughs> what a shame. What also, a weirdly really specific question if it was false. It was. <laughs> so, uh, it's a nice thought that um, that's what Thomas Edison came up with. So, uh, so to you, Christy, now, please, for your Honest Day piece. Thank you very much. Hello. Hello. <laughs> wow. With the British monarchy in the minds of the British public, more than usual, I thought I would pick a topical historical day. Before 2011, if you were the eldest daughter of the King or Queen of England, but had a younger brother, you would not inherit the throne. Instead, he would. However, on the 28th of October 2011, the leaders of the Commonwealth came together and unanimously and magnanimously agreed to change that. Now she would inherit the throne. And I, for one, welcome this decision. Women's suffrage has been going on for over a hundred years and it's taken until now for the equal rights to be won for the women of British monarchy. 
But that's not all. No, no, indeed. The spirit of human rights had not yet sated its hunger for liberty and justice. It had one more victim that day. For the great and noble leaders of the Commonwealth agreed one further thing, that Roman Catholics could marry future kings and queens of England. Finally, my people could emerge from the shadows after hundreds of years in exile to rightfully reclaim our queen consort. <laughs> That's right, I'm Roman Catholic. <laughs> I've had my spiritual vaccination. I'm baptised, I'm going to heaven. Oh, well, that's a lie, I'm not going to heaven. You see, I'm also a lesbian. A practicing lesbian. <laughs> a practicing lesbian. And God, really homophobic. <laughs> However, if anyone can change God's mind, it's the British royal family. <laughs> and so I hope and pray that one day, the Commonwealth will come together and agree that lesbians can marry into the royal family. <laughs> <laughs> because they, on the 2011, they all came together and announced to the world that duchesses are indeed equal to dukes. And I wonder when will they come together and announce to the world that princesses can marry dykes. <laughs> and princes can marry queens. <laughs> now, I don't identify as a dyke, more of a lipstick lesbian, but I do want to marry a princess. You see, that's the ultimate end game here. I want to rule over you lot. <laughs> I want title. I want land, and I want the taxpayer to pay for my luxurious royal lifestyle. <laughs> and so, when might I expect this day of great change to be ushered in? Well, to answer that, we're going to do some data analysis. Everyone loves data. You love data. Here is some data. As of today, in the Commonwealth, there is one country that bans voting rights for women. As of today, there were 33 countries in the Commonwealth that ban homosexuality. And, as of today, in the Commonwealth, there were 42 countries that ban Roman Catholic priests from babysitting. <laughs> and thus, from this data, what can we infer? Well, absolutely nothing at all. And so, unfortunately, I shall remain in the shadow of ignorance most likely accept my fate that I should die a commoner. However, despite all of this, I am still more likely to become Queen Consort than Meghan Markle. <laughs> <laughs> so make of that what you will. Thank you very much. Thank you, Christy. And for anyone listening on the podcast, if it makes it to podcast, uh, Christy did that without notes. It's the first time that's ever happened in the show, so well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, quite impressive. So now we come to the second half of the show, uh, exactly at, at six o'clock, which, uh, which is excellent timing as well. We come now to the second half where we cover some of the history of Faversham. Uh, I don't think the audience are going to keep me right here, but we'll see how we get on. So for listeners who might be struggling to imagine where Faversham is, it's in Kent. It's about 50 miles east of London and 10 miles west of Canterbury. It lies close to the Swale, the strip of sea which separates mainland Kent from the Isle of Sheppey in the Thames estuary. Now there has been a settlement at Faversham since pre-Roman times, next to the ancient seaport on Faversham Creek. The town currently has a population of only about 20,000, yet it has over 300 listed buildings, many of them half-timbered dwellings. One pub, the Bull Inn, dates back to 1409. And the Grade 2 listed Royal Cinema near the town square, and which opened in 1936, is one of only two mock Tudor cinemas to survive in the UK. <laughs> Check us out. It took me a while to find where the other one is. I believe it's in Salisbury. So let's see what happens. If you want to burn the one down in Salisbury, you'll be the only one. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not encouraging. 
So the name Faversham question, where does where does that originate? So I'm kind of looking now more in your direction, Judy, because you're the locals. So. Doesn't Ham mean dwelling a dwelling place, town, settlement? Yeah, yeah like um, Southampton. No, not Southampton. <laughs> West Ham. Is that, yeah. I don't know. Yes, Horsham, all of that yes, kind of place. Yes. Um, I think Faversham might be a corruption of Feversham. Um, and for the life of me, I can't remember how it got to that. Wasn't it something oh, sort of fabricating, the ironworks oh, or something? Oh, like yeah. oh yeah, it was the, yes, yes, the metal work. We've activated the dad now, yes. he's going to check in. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fef, yeah, Fefairy, Old English, and, uh, and, and Ham, as, as you say, settlement. Metalworkers Village, apparently, is the closest we can get. Now, a uh, question to the panel again Which English king was buried at Famisham Abbey? Oh, I know this one. If you know, if, but I'll, James, I'll, I'll, I'll get him before June. If you, oh well, I, t- I know this one because I'm a huge fan of Cadwell, and it's the, uh, the the war in the background of Cadwell was the uh, the anarchy. Mm. Um, right. with, right. uh, Empress Maud and King Stephen. King Stephen. 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 Yes. Yeah. Very fine that one is. So he was buried in. Oh, oh what? <laughs> 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 Make the most of it, right? Uh, yeah, King Stephen was buried in Hamishar Abbey in 1154. He had established the Abbey in 1148. It did not survive the dissolution of the monasteries, though, in 1538. Uh, any questions to the panel? What in 2011 was discovered in the town to be a genuine article dating back nearly 800 years? Magna Carta. Dishy Yes, yeah, so uh, if I've got the facts right, in 2011 it was discovered that the town owns an original copy of Magna Carta. Did you just assume it was a fact summary? I don't Absolutely. think anyone knew it was there. Oh. I think it oh. was tucked away in the cupboard and we forgot. My goodness. <laughs> wow. And it was potentially worth about £20 million, so yeah. whoever owned that cupboard. So well, sitting in the cupboard. They're no longer living in Faversham. So if it had been a copy, it would have been only worth about £10,000. So in 2015, the copy went on display to the public at the town's Alexander Centre. Yeah. Um, the first time it had been on display for 715 years. Amazing. Now, a little uh, test now for the, for the panel. Test your local knowledge with a, a true or false round on Faversham street names. So, are the following real Faversham street names or not? Okay. Number one, Les Spickett Close. False. 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 It's true or false, so you can say. I'll, I'll go false, because they're all shouting. Yeah. <laughs> the Spillet Close, but not Spickett. Oh. oh, so I, I, I've got my facts wrong. I've been corrected then. Uh, I've got it down as true, so, but it's Les Spillet then, is it? Spillet? Yeah. Spillet. Okay. Probably a former mayor up on the wall there somewhere. Which is probably why I couldn't find anything online about him then. I was going, who was this Les Spickett? And he didn't exist, that's why I couldn't find him. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, every day is a learning day. So it's it's a bit of Number two, Ticklebelly Avenue. Uh, true. Sorry, Ticklebelly Avenue. It's true. It's true. The clues were there. Number three, Bushy Close. False. <laughs> they just can't contain themselves. No, they can't contain <laughs> I, I like the way that the person who's so adamant there isn't the bushy close has got the biggest beard. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm saying it's true, but is it true? Bushy close. You want to have a bushy no close? I don't know if a bushy close. Anyone got an A to Z with them? <laughs> okay, we'll move on then. Uh, number four, Kent Hurry Love Grove. Kent Hurry Love was a song by the Supremes <laughs> and Phil Collins. Yeah. Uh, number five, Smack Alley. Smack Alley? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 there is a Smack Alley. It's also the name of a one time folk band from Whitstable. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay, right. They were great. King's, King's Head Key where part of Provender Walk now stands, took its name from an old pub, which was demolished in 1849. Its name was transferred to a pub in Abbey Street, formerly known as the Mermaid, and then the Smack. Smack Alley is alongside it and takes its name from the pub's old name. So if you, if you can follow that, that's quite complicated. Talking of pubs, Faversham's first known link with brewing follows the founding of the town's abbey, which you mentioned earlier, in 1147 by King Smack. Within the site was a brew house which produced ale for the monks. 
The brew house was above a well which contained natural chalk-filtered water. By 1327, brewing in Faversham was conducted by at least 86 women known as alewives. Most of them sold their beer from their homes, but some were innkeepers. Shepherd Neem is the town's brewery, and there is evidence that brewing has taken place on the site since at least 1573, making it the oldest in the UK. The brewery itself was founded in 1698 and continues to be family owned, and as Shepherd Neem since 1864. It was Richard Marsh who bought the brewery in 1698. In his capacity as mayor, Marsh held King James II as a prisoner after he ran aground off Faversham while attempting to flee to France to avoid William of Orange and his threatening Dutch army during the Glorious Revolution of 1688. The monarch was confined at the brewery. Well, there are worse places to go. <laughs> the sailing barges on Faversham Creek were once used to import the malts into their riverside wharves. Then they would transport the final products up to their inns in London. Before motorised transport became widespread, horse-drawn drays were used to move the brewery's ales throughout Kent. So, let's involve the panel again, so it's not just me speaking the whole time. Can you name two famous Shepherd Neem's beers? One produced in 1958 and named after a signpost that pointed the way to Thomas Beckett's tomb? Bishop's Finger? Bishop's Finger. Otherwise indeed. known as Nun's Delight. <laughs> just to lower the tone. Okay. I can't wait for the next one then. Uh, one produced in 1990 to mark the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. Not Bombardier, that's not. Sorry, does the Spitfire have a naughty name? It doesn't, I don't think. No, no, okay. Yeah. Well, a few more hundred years to get a good naughty name. Yes. <laughs> I'll remember that Bishop's finger, wouldn't you? So, uh, what is the Hop Festival? <laughs> Is it like a, a hip hop festival but you only turn up for day two? <laughs> Is it like when you, you know you have that child's game and you, you lay out the, the numbers on the floor and you have to ah, yes. relaunch the like hop relaunch. festival? Yes. Yes. That's a good idea. And the scotch would oh, yeah. go with the beer, wouldn't it? Yeah, so, then you, yeah. yes. <laughs> Um, could, could it have anything to do with the brewing industry? Yeah, like it could yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the Hop Festival, what I've got here is a kind of beer, folk and Morris Festival, as it, when it started, <laughs> held in Faversham on the first weekend in September. It's run by volunteers, as is the comedy uh, or the arts festival here, and it's, it's free to enter. Uh, so actually, what are hops in this context? Uh, it's a. I don't know, kind of grain, isn't it? I, I, I know very little. It's a plant related distantly, I believe, to cannabis, um, and it is used to flavour um, beer. Yeah. yeah. So uh, hops are flowers of the hop plant, humulus lupulus, used primarily as a bittering, flavouring, and stability agent in beer to which, in addition to bitterness, they impart floral, fruity, or citrus flavours and aromas. Just get us a beer. <laughs> we don't care about that. Yeah. Um, how far back does the Hop Festival go? This year was the 20... I think it was about the 26th year of the Hop Festival. There's not a lot of agreement in the room. No, there isn't. <laughs> 28, I'm told by a reliable informant. For anyone listening, uh, there's various audience members holding up various numbers of fingers. Uh, <laughs> but not, not, for, not for the bishop's finger, no. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> That's um, people say, well, I only remember three of them, so I'm guessing there are seven. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it's only relatively recent. I, I've got it starting in 1990, so yes. if it's been every year except the pandemic, possibly, yeah. so we're to about. 30, by now? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. 31 and Miss 2. There you go. There we go. Yeah. You, you've been to every one, by the sound of it. No, my students designed the 30th. Uh, oh, I see. Oh, fantastic. Yes, yes. So, I have to say, it was at the, the home of Shepherd's Neve, one of the oldest breweries, and we've got the Hope Festival that goes all the way back to when Blur and Oasis were in the charts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of why I asked the question, because I thought, oh, Hope Festival, that sounds like it goes back centuries. It's actually only <laughs> But uh, lovely, lovely lots of festivals in this town. So we move on now to 
question I've already mentioned it earlier on, but what did Faversham produce which made the town the centre of a UK industry at the end of the 19th and early 20th century? Could it have something to do with the name of that park nearby? Is it park or oh, the gunpowder? Oh, the gunpowder works, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, th this, this is what worried me during Christie's speech, because we, what we've done is we brought a Catholic with a monarchy fixation to a town that's famous for gunpowder. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nearly it's the very very as well. So the answer is explosives. Let's be honest, kings haven't fared well here so far. Lots of in a brewery, I mean, it could have been worse, couldn't it? So only for three days. Yeah, so Faversham's original gunpowder plant was built also in 1573, which is quite a, quite a, quite a year, it seems. <laughs> and more factories were developed over the centuries. Gunpowder manufactured in the town was used in the Battle of Trafalgar and in the Battle of Waterloo. So, I don't know if that's a, a good luck thing or not, no? Now, I have something on this, so I don't know if it's on your list later. Have you got anything on gun cotton? In, in your. I, I, you can talk about that, please. Well, one of the things I found out when I was reading up in the town was, um, I think it was the first contract to make gun cotton was here. Mm -hmm. It's what now I think is like flash paper they use in magic, so yeah, nitrate-infused paper that was uh, more explosive than gunpowder. And the contract was here. And what I love is it was invented by a doctor at the University of Basel, and he gave the license here. And you can tell how safe it was that he gave the license to somewhere that was 400 miles away. <laughs> <laughs> It really wasn't. It was John Hall Close is named after that the guy that established the factory. Oh um, no, but the, the inventor I think was a Dr. Christian Schonbein in Basel. But the, yeah. the, the local got the contract. John Hall. Yeah. And um, it blew up quite swiftly after they started, from what I understand. Um, and they, they never spoke of it again. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so there was an accident on, uh, I think that's what you're referring to, on the 2nd of April 1916. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the gunpowder one, no, that was the gunpowder one, that was easy. <laughs> um, so, uh, this, this accident actually killed over 100 workers in 1916. Sparks from a chimney ignited 150 tonnes of high explosive at the gun cotton factory at Upleys on the River Swale estuary, three miles away from Faversham. So, yeah, you've already said about gun cotton, so I don't need to say that. The only mercy was, it actually happened on a Sunday, Otherwise, many more would have been killed in the factory. Well, I don't know if we saw saying there would have been women in the factory as well. Yeah. Because it was Sunday, it was only the, uh, the men and mm. boys. There's a mass grave at the town cemetery yeah. for all of the people. Yeah. Wow. Um, the explosion was heard as far away as, I don't know why the figures, but as Norwich and France. So, um, not quite sure how far west it went. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, in 1916, many young men from as far away as Hearn Bay were working in the factory. Rather than fighting in France, they received an extra two shillings a week in danger money. <laughs> and they were very strict about how things were at the factory, that, so that, because of the risk of explosion. So they couldn't have anything metal, basically. So no metal buttons on the garments. All buttons were made of wood. Uh, there were no pockets on overalls, so you couldn't keep anything hidden. No pipes, obviously, or matches or cigarettes allowed in the works. All these had to be put in the pigeonholes by the employees as they arrived to work. Tramway rails, they couldn't be made of metal either, so they were made of wood. Women were not allowed to use metal hairpins or grips, but had to have the hair tied up in a net. Even the horses, they had brass horseshoes instead of metal uh, of iron. I thought you were going to say they had to have wooden horses. I know, I know. <laughs> yes. I, I, was, I was reading ahead and thought that didn't make sense, but yeah, yes. Uh, uh, so basically nothing that would uh, that create sparks that could set off an explosion. Buildings were constructed of wood and, and they were well spaced out. Security precautions were, were very good. There were a military guard of 128 men and 24 patrolmen across the site. Did they have wooden guns? Yes. Good point. Yes. Mate, yes. Cutting. 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 They had their own part-time fire brigade, plenty of hydrants and hoses, and a pump was always at the ready to raise extra water. 
Uh, the high-pressure mains water had been laid for the factors and hydrants were ready for installation, but the contractors had failed to deliver the pumps. So what happened was there was some TNT that was stored in front of one of the wooden huts. Uh, someone noticed that a fire had started, and this was a, on this Sunday lunchtime. This was a glorious day, apparently, nice and dry. And Mr Underwood, the clerk of works, first noticed that there was this these flames coming from these empty bags and raised the alert, but it was too late, basically. And uh, uh, So I, didn't, I, I thought there'd just been a spark and an explosion, but there was actually this series of events. So there was this fire, they tried to deal with it, but at 1.20pm, that's when the first explosion happened. And then there was a second terrific explosion and a third one. It created basically a crater 150 feet in diameter, mm and 10 to 15 feet deep. <clears throat> but there were no, no photographs because with it being World War I at the time, there was, there was, they wanted to keep, keep things secret. So there's actually no, I believe, there's no photographs of, no, of the aftermath. So, yeah. And at this point, Richard Tesla says, okay, panel, make some jokes on this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, so the actual number of people killed is not known for certain, but the likely death toll was about 108. And there also caused a large number of injuries as well as deaths. And, um, the people had to be taken to the Cottage Hospital in Stone Street in Faversham and then to two military hospitals and the infirmary in the area because there's so many casualties. And then you alluded to this... Sorry, I was going to say, here's one for you, Richard. Yeah. Do you know why the Abbey... The Abbey... Uh, uh, the Abbey works were called Mexico, apparently. They're called what? Mexico. Mexico. It was the mining explosives company. So the telegraph code was was uh, shortened to Mexico. I I go down some deep Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, have you talked about the pirate John Ward? Uh, is this movie Oh, this this is a complete separate subject. Oh, right. So I didn't know if you. Well, there's there just one. Just one oh, more, sorry. What, well, there's one more thing, which is about the the mass the mass grave, which you alluded to. So there were so many that they had to have a, a mass grave for 69 coffins. Uh, the cemeteries are in Love Lane. Yeah. yeah. Um, another six victims were buried in private graves at the cemetery. So all 75 were employees at the factory. The two youngest victims were both 17 and the oldest 61. Um, nearly half were in their 30s and 40s. So that, that was the last, the last happy section to that. Too. Sorry, I, I, I didn't realize there was a little bit more on that. Yeah. No, this, this is what I found in my research. It is, I don't know how confirmed it is, but yes, there is Birdie. John Ward, um, nicknamed Jack Birdie, who was a pr uh, local fisherman or worked in the fishing industry and then became a privateer. Uh, so, a authorised pirate attacking the Spanish and looting them. Uh, then we had uh, the uh, new king come in, who wanted to make peace with Spain, so the privateers all lost their letters of mark. So, uh, him and his crew went. Made a lot of money attacking ships. We'll just be pirates and attack everybody. Um, a hugely successful criminal career. Uh, if you don't count success as being able to ever come back to England, um, they were such immensely uh, successful pirates that at one point, apparently, there was talk about the Venetian authorities declaring war on England unless they brought them under control. He didn't live in England at this point, and he was in you know, Tunis, completely far away. They're like, it's yours, sort him out. Now, <laughs> this is one thing I loved reading about Fauci. Like, here is a pirate who is so desperately um, full of terrible deeds that a war was nearly started to stop this one man, and you're all going, yeah, he's ours. <laughs> But the thing that makes him notable is so he was John Ward or Jack Birdie, and then uh, he had to stay in Tunis and he converted to Islam where he took the name, uh, hang on, I've got it written down here, uh, Yusuf Rice. But he also was known by the name Yusuf Asfa, and Asfa is the word for sparrow, which was a bird that he got uh, fascinated with. He was apparently the uh, one of the influences for Jack Sparrow. Love that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> what I also liked is trying to do the research on that, and the one site I found which had all this information, not a fashion historical site, not that, it was an estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> and estate agents had that whole story. That's basically where I cricked that from. Look, I mean, um, it's really great for my purposes, but how the hell are you going to save houses? <laughs> 
I've actually come to the end of my Faversham section, so is, is there anything that I've missed about Faversham that we need to tell people here? Uh, put you on the spot oh, um, I think it's just an all-round pretty cool place, and um, people that live here often stay here, yeah. um, and people that move here stay here, um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's got a fantastic sense of community, you're here participating in the Fringe Festival, thanks for coming, um, and yeah, there's something happening nearly every week of the year here, it's brilliant. Thank you, that's definitely selling the place. You should work in the estate agents as well. <laughs> <laughs> yep, so our, our time is nearly up, so I would just like to thank our guests. We, had, we uh, heard from Jude Sack, Richie Rands and Christy Ingalls, thank you. And I would like to thank the Faversham Fringe for hosting the show and the Guildhall as well uh, for hosting us today in this uh, wonderful historical building, which people on podcast can't see, but we are surrounded by lots of pictures of mayors. And uh, I, can't, I can't read how far back, how far back do they go? 1409. Every mayor since 1409 is listed on the walls. So it's a wonderful historic building to, to host, host this show. Thank you for having us here. Um, I've got one more final on this day, which is about Ted Hughes, who was Poet Laureate, and he died on this day in 1998. Uh, he succeeded John Betjeman as Poet Laureate in 1984. He was a controversial character, partly due to the way he allegedly treated his wife, which I won't go into. Uh, she was the American-born poet Sylvia Plath, but he is frequently ranked as one of the best poets of his generation. So here is a quote from him with which to end the show. The only calibration that counts is how much heart people invest, how much they ignore their fears of being hurt or caught out or humiliated. And the only thing people regret is that they didn't live boldly enough, that they didn't invest enough heart and didn't love enough. Nothing else really counts at all. And with that, it's thank you and goodbye from Faversham. Thank you.